Microphone checker. Oh, yeah. Internets, welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show. Week in, week out, new episodes. Check the catalog. Listen, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. Okay, if you've been around since the early days of the Premium Pete Show, even way back to my brother Combat Jack, Reggio say, rest in peace forever. Okay, energy never dies. Then, thank you for rocking with us. You know, week in, week out, week out, we're going to have different episodes. You may hear a, 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 a legendary hip-hop artist. You may hear an entrepreneur. You may hear an actor. You know, you may you never know who you're going to hear on the Premium Pete Show. So I suggest, if you are new to listening to this show, dig in the catalog. And while you're at it, rate, okay? Rate the catalog. Leave a comment. Suggest. Tell a friend to tell a friend about the Premium Pete Show. And we're also on YouTube, okay? Check us out on YouTube. Subscribe. There's a bunch of behind-the-scenes videos, full-clip videos, there's a bunch of shit on there. Go check it out. Internets, you know when I tell you to open up your Twitter app, open up your Instagram app, at Premium P, at Premium Petro, and check the fuck in. Internets worldwide, love to y'all, man. Every week, okay, people from in the States and outside the States, okay, are, are, are let me know what they're listening to, where they're checking in from, and I love seeing that. So, Internets, if this is you and you're listening to this now, open up your Twitter app, open up your Instagram app, at me, okay, at Premium P, at Premium Petro. Let me know where you're listening from, and let me know what you're listening to, okay? Even if you want to tell me, like, yo, Pete, come to Detroit. They make good pizza. I may not believe you, but we're going to talk, and we're going to chop it up. Antonis, when I tell you something, man, last week's episode with the one and only Pretty Lou was a special one. I love telling stories like that. Pretty Lou has been in radio for a long time. Not only that, one of the biggest things, you know, a host for many years in different clubs, everything from bat mitzvahs to big events in the Barclays to, to, to you know, the charity events. One thing I really love about Pretty Lou is his, his attitude, his positivity. He got cancer and leukemia about five years ago, has been fighting for his life, was in a coma for 13 days. People thought he wasn't going to come back, and he came out of it. And he still has the positivity and the will to inspire people and never give up. And, man, I'm just so proud of him. I love him. If you get a chance, check that episode out, the Pretty Lou episode of the Premium Pete Show. It's a special one, okay? You know, you speak about all these things going on with people and cancer and how we lost combat and what's going on with Pretty Lou. And if you follow me on Instagram, I really haven't probably put it on Twitter, but my grandma, Grandma Premium, who's going to be 98 in three weeks, um, has been in the hospital for a month. And it's been rough, man. You know, she had to get a colon surgery, a major surgery. And her going under an anesthesia at 98 is a tough thing, okay? Because your heart, you're old, you may not come out of that. So, you know, it was a couple of days I remember being in there saying goodbye to her and, and talking to her. Well, not goodbye to her, but, you know, before she went into surgery. And may have felt like that was the last time. And it brought a tear to my eye. Internet, you know how much I love. And, and family has been... You know, I speak about presence over presence and being in your kid's life and being in your family's life more than that gift and how that'll be the best gift you ever give. And I really mean that. I live that. And, and you know, my family has been my backbone, my support. When I was down and out, they were always there for me. And whether that be when I was in trouble, they would come visit me in different places and they never forgot about me. And that meant the world to me. And and my grandmother has been there. I mean, 98, imagine. I would sign up for 98 tomorrow. So it's been tough, but I'm I'm here to let you know she... Uh, came out of the surgery. She's a warrior. She's a survivor. Um, she had a colon removed. There was a blockage. They want to get her back to eating, get her back to being hydrated uh, and getting fluids in her. It's going to be a recovery process. Please keep her in your prayers. Uh, thank you so much, Internet. I, I really appreciate all the love that people have sent me. And if you're just finding out, I just wanted to let the world know that, 
you know, uh, check on your loved ones, man. Give them their flowers while they're here. And remember, I always say this, even with your parents or your family, as you're getting older, so are they. Internets, I don't want to hold you anymore, man. Uh, I want to tell you, though, this episode we're about to get into is a very, very special one, okay? It's with the one and only George Cowboy Moderano, Philadelphia's own. I mean, his story literally should be, and I believe will be, a Netflix movie, a Hulu uh, uh, docuseries, something, because it's that crazy, okay? Let me give you a little info before we get into this episode. George Monterano is the longest-serving, first-time, nonviolent offender in the Federal Bureau, okay? He was serving life without parole for weed, okay? For potentially about, like, 26 pounds of weed. That, allegedly, wasn't even his, okay? They even tried to give him, check this out, they even tried to give him the death sentence at one point in time for weed, so a lot of corrupt judges, something going on with his father. His father was involved in the mob, and, and, and who knows exactly what happened, but I'm telling you, this guy's story is a movie, okay? And he's another one who stays positive and has come home and helped people, okay, and, 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 and prison reform and has a CBD cafe in Philadelphia. Internets has wrote so many books, the author, the, you know, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a survivor, Okay, I'm telling you right now, this is an episode that is special. So many different stories. Being John Gotti being his cellmate, okay, uh, uh, fires in jail, making it through, saving someone's life for fucking twelve jars of peanut butter. Internet's it's a fucking movie. I present to you the George Moderano, the George Cowboy Moderano episode of the Premium Pete Show. Let's get to it. Cheer. Yo, what's up, y'all? This is Fat Man Scoop, the other smooth voice of the club, the two-time Grammy Award winner. Let me make this official for you. Fat Man Scoop, Cork McClan, Internets. It's time to go with my dude, Premium Pete. Let's get focused. Let's go, Internets. Let's turn up one time, Premium Pete. Come on, everybody, get set. Let's go. It's the next episode. It's the Premium Pete Show. News, interviews, all of the info. Listen up. It's the Premium Pete Show. If you want the scoop in the low, down low, listen to the show cause Milk said so fuck what you heard better act like you know it's the premium Pete show internets welcome back to another episode of the premium Pete show this is a very very special episode sitting down with a very good fellow and I, sometimes I say that a lot but there's so many different stories one thing I love about the premium Pete show is we've been able to bring stories like a library from people from all walks of life you know um it's this journey is a special one, and once I think uh, you you know you're, you're tuned in, when you finish this episode, you'll be left with, uh, wow, what a great journey, what a story, what a redemption, and what a new life. Uh, you know, for people listening who may not even know when the name comes up, George Moderano, okay. Well, the longest, or now you're not the longest anymore, right? But you were the longest serving, first time, nonviolent. Offender in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, right? Yes, yes, 32-plus years. I went away uh, basically 31. A few months later, I became 32, and I came home at 65. You know, it, it, it's crazy because when I tell some people who don't know their story, because I always look at it this way. People listening who know you, they're going to learn a little bit more today. People who never heard of you, I want them to learn, right? And... It's crazy because some people say, you know, for weed, this guy got life in prison. Like, you know, it's 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 sometimes mind-boggling, you know, to think of like how that could even be possible. Now, the story will be explained and told more and more as we get through this episode. But did you 
ever think that from you know selling weed or whatever you were doing at the time many many years ago that you would get a life sentence without parole I was the first nonviolent offender to get life uh, no parole in America uh, I, I never even had a parking ticket and uh, basically my my illegal actions were based only three years and uh, again I was the first person in America to get life no parole it was it was uh, it's it's got all all the father for a great book, a great movie. You had you had street double cross, you had courtroom double cross, you had attorneys that were crooked. I mean, it just uh, it just was totally political and backroom antics, uh, basically. But it it took away my life. You know, I've been traveling and speaking around the country since a short t- uh, time. I'm home, and a lot of now young young uh, legal minds want me to go litigate civilly. Uh, what was done to me. And uh, I, at first, when I first got home, I, I, I wouldn't consider it. But now, I'm mentally playing with it. We'll see. You know, let's take people back. Uh, before we even get into this episode, um, I definitely want... Hold on. Let me, let me bring that down and drop there. Go right there. We're going to get this thing straight. We got a movie to uh, tell right here. You know, I live close to... I'm a Brooklyn kid, born and raised. Uh, I live close to Philly on an undisclosed location. And um, I frequent Philly a lot. And shouts to uh, our good friend Mike and Chris from Suplex, uh, who introduced me to you. You know, and I, I never forget the. I remember him telling me that he told you like, "Oh, when you meet this kid Pete, uh, you're gonna like him." And you know, he he said for a second, he's like, "Pete's not like this guy. He's not walking in with a briefcase or whatever." You know, first time we met each other, we hung out for like six and a half hours. We had wine. We had Branzino, and uh, I met your sister. Uh, is that her husband? Yeah, Mario. I mean, you know, I helped them with their bags upstairs. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you walked around South Street in Philadelphia. And I swear to God, I'm not saying this. Anybody who listens to me knows I'm a very honest person. I speak right from my heart, right from... You were like the mayor of fucking Philly. Um, I walked around, everybody, hey, John, you know, hey, hey, George. You know me, John. Hey, George, hey, you know, how are you? How are you? you know, and... It, it it was special to see. It was special to see whether we went in uh, uh, to a, a a bar or or we just walked down the street. There was a lot of love for you. You know, for people, let's take it all the way back. For people listening, uh, like I said, who never heard of you, George Monterano. Okay, you were born in Philadelphia. Yes, I was born in uh, uh, Philly and then uh, raised in Philly and in the South Jersey uh, Shore because. You know, my family, uh, you know, had businesses there and there. What type of business did they have? Uh, restaurant businesses, vending businesses. Uh, I worked, I worked all, all my life. Worked all my life. When you say you worked all your life, meaning like your first job was? Well, I started working eight, nine years old after school, right on at the restaurant. Adult, all kinds of businesses that the family had. Maybe that's why I went to selling pot because I was tired of working. <laughs> and. Uh, now what, what what did what did mom do? Was mom a stay at home uh, mom or she was stay at home mom? Uh, she was born in Italy. Her parents were. Her parents were. And uh, what about your in pops? A very ethnic neighborhood, David Runyon neighborhood. You know, my dad. Uh, your dad was born in Italy. No, his parents were. He was he was born here, and uh, and uh, my dad. Uh, he got started getting his respect at a, at a young age. Uh, when I was two years old, uh, 
there was a there was a my my street I was I lived on was was nicknamed uh, Gunman's Row. Wow, six hundred block of Fitzroy. It was Gunman's Row. They had cafes where mo- a lot of businessmen in the twenties and thirties that had money owed to them. They would hire come down and hire gunmen. It was it was a standard thing. So I was raised on Gunman Row. Fast forward, I was uh, I was only a two year old, and there was one gunman. It was called Benny the Gimp. Benny Gimp used to have uh, two long-barreled thirty-eight side holsters. And, but he had a thing about me. He used to love to go get me as a little baby and, and bring me onto the corner and let me eat ice cream. He would love to see ice cream get all over me. And my mother was a young woman. She used to shake, give him to the baby. But my father was a young guy. You know, he was trying to make ends meet, and he used to get mad and... And then uh, one one afternoon, uh, a car pulls up and kills Benny. Kills him, blows him away. I was in a stroller a few feet away. And uh, naturally, my mother heard the shots. And a half a block away, she come and scooped me up. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was on the lam at two years old because the homicide detectives wanted to know who was the, the baby in that stroller. So I was on the lam at a young age. <laughs> you know... As we, as we, you know, we're starting from you being young and being born and, and growing up in Philly and South Jersey with your father, your mother, you go by, you know, and I don't want to jump, but I do want to ask this. You go by the name of uh, Cowboy. Oh. George Moderano. What the fuck? Where'd you get well, that? Well, that's, that's a name I always disliked because my, my indictment came down in uh, 1983. It said George, a.k.a. Cowboy Moderano. But it's a great, great story behind that because I was hanging in Houston doing some weed deals and a friend of mine had a bar and then the bar was full of cowboys. So I would say, just call the bar and ask for cowboy. Well, lo and behold, the bar was was being tapped by the FBI. So the FBI loves to give you these AKAs. They wanted to give you that handle. So... I didn't never like that name, but this is the thing that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be speaking around the country, especially at prisons, federal prisons. I'm taking that negative and turning it into positive because mm. I already have investors who are coming out with the hemp cowboy uh, uh, cigarettes, cartons of cigarettes with my picture on it. And it should, we should be out in about 90 days, 60 days. Where would, where would that be available? Uh, well, hopefully. Online? CBDs are legal everywhere. You sure. can get them online and. And many anybody that has a retail license, we're going to move forward. So, and then I want to take that uh, what I just said into the prisons and say, you know, the best revenge is success. So mm. when you guys come out, you know, don't don't be negative, don't be positive. So I'm going to use that as a powerful message. You know, not that's beautiful, and I look forward to the internet's worldwide being able to uh, check out some of the products you have coming out. You know, when you think about when we, let's go back when you think about you're in the stroll, they're looking for the stroller. Now, did when did you come back into you know action after going on you know you hit the mattress you know what I mean at two well, years I, had, I was hit out of two grandparents' house one in the neighborhood when they, when they were still searching looking then when they moved me to to the Wildwood New Jersey which was ninety miles away so I don't know, I was a baby a, a child a two year old on the lamb imagine yeah. that that's crazy now let me ask you did you know you know your father. Hold on, let me bring this back up. Let me just make sure we're good. I want it to sound perfect for you. Now, your father, for those who don't know, is uh, 
you know. Raymond Long John. Long John was his. I mean, a legendary. Uh, uh, yeah. They said know. in the prosecutor said in the courtroom that he was a gangster. He No, he was a criminal. Criminal's criminal. criminal. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? What do you think they meant by that? Well, my father. Uh, and actually, again, like I'm considering civil action. My father was a, was a, was a, a mobster. I wasn't, and that's documented. He was, and was he a capo? Was a captain, or you remember the rank? He, he just was always way above Belvedere. He he had a, he had a reputation of being a, a good earner, and uh, and listen, money money makes uh, the underworld go round. So he he basically had his own voice, did his uh, did his own thing, and um, did he get did he get um, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I, I feel like I heard this. I don't know, you know. Um, but I, did he get? Uh, you know, when when someone's in the you know mafia and the mobster, you know, they get made. I, I feel like I heard that he got made in Italy. I don't even no, know. If that's true. No, no, got made. This, it's, it's, it's one thing that's got nothing to do with the other. Okay. He, was, he was made. As a matter of fact, when when the when an informant. One a person turned informant and got the I don't mention informant's names on the air, but and got the list of every made member in Philadelphia, sixty uh, something names, and my father was on it. I wasn't because if my name was on that list, sure. I wouldn't be wouldn't be here sitting you, doing you know, this show. You told show. me that before. You're not you're not being released if your if your prison file, if your courtroom file courtroom file be, as if then comes your prison file if you say you're a member of a, of the cause Organized of crime, yeah. you're not you're not getting nothing because you know there's certain uh, circumstances to be there you know you you know look you were an earner you were a stand up guy you still are today obviously you could have been made why you know and a lot of people and I don't know you you you're, you're older than me way older than me when I grew up in Brooklyn like I remember, like, that was like, like you know, like, people used to, like, almost, like, die for that. Like, well, yeah. yeah, but the old school mentality, which I was, I believe until today, if you're, if you had a family member that was with the mob, it was like, that was yeah, enough. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, a foolish person would want six people in his family, because then when indictment comes down, the old six go away. So, you know, that, that was the old days, when you, you, you lived all for honesty and not... You know, people don't believe that. To be, to be in the criminal world, you have to be more honest and, and straightforward than anything, especially no no lies. No lies are accepted. You know, so growing up and your father being, you know, a mobster and, and, and being in the neighborhood, like, how was that going to school? Like, you know what I mean? Did, did people know that, like, your father was a mobster in Oh, school? yeah, yeah. But I never, I, never, I never flaunted it. I never abused people. Uh, you know, it was that. Yo, you, uh, well, the guy, the ice cream guy, is not here no more. What yeah. happened to him? <laughs> he, he would just, you know, use it to help others, basically. Yeah. Especially the poor uh, people that had neighborhood guys or didn't have much as you. You had to be there. You had to be there to help them. Now, did you have, like, a good relationship with Pops growing up? Oh, did yeah. Take we you were brothers. Like... We weren't father and yeah? son. We were... What do you mean by that? Explain. We just... He just... He just, we just hit it off. We know things had to be done, and that was it. Yeah. Do you you know, we're trying, any, to, you're trying any, to survive, you know. Do you recall any moments or memories that, that stick with you about Pops? Uh, several, several. Uh, Take one, us through. One, one, one profound quote uh, that he stated, he said, and 
an excuse might be the truth, but it's still an excuse. Mm. In other words, doing this show tonight, it was very, you know, I had to be on my toes to get here. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't Uber here or cab here. You know, the first time you took the New York City train. The first time I took a subway train is to come here to the show. So if I come here, walk to the show was supposed to be at 745 or 7. If I walked in at 8 o'clock and told the truth that I took an Uber and I got stuck in traffic, it might have been the truth, but it's still an excuse. I want to share that with a lot of young people out there. That's a very profound statement. Hey, listen, this guy's dropping gems already. Moderano is dropping gems. 31 books this fucking guy authored. You know, while you were away, again, sometimes I, I don't go in full order, so I'll bounce around. But when you were away, authored, correct me if I'm wrong, 31 books. I heard that you wrote more than 2 million words. With a pen I wrote 2 million words, free hands, between books and scripts and short stories. It's a... Uh, it's, you know, two things are going to happen in prison. Are you going to get busy with your mind and body? Are you going to deteriorate? So I had to fight deterioration by keeping extremely physically and mentally busy. I mean, I'm no, I'm no, uh, I'm no superhero, superhuman. It was a job. It was basically a very, it was a struggle at times. You had to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, 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 Move on. Even yeah. though you're not moving on, you had to move on mentally. I've seen so many guys fall by the wayside, so many. Mm. What do you mean by that? You mean in jail? Mind takes over, they give up. Commit suicide? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, I was, I, was, uh, I designed, I was, I'm happy to, to say I was a participant in the, this, the design suicide program that is today, uh, the companion program. <laughs> You mean talk, you know, helping yeah, people? That's yeah. why this thing. I hate to bring up current news, but this thing in Epstein with MCC is totally, totally uh, uh, not the rules. Because I, I I dealt with that for years. I was a suicide trained companion. Then I went to be a suicide coordinator to other uh, companions for years. So some protocol was definitely not uh, wasn't policy. What happened? What would you do when you know you're on that uh, you know watch of suicide in prison? You know, you you would talk people down. Would they listen to you? You know. Well, it was you know it was it's just that the, if someone's determined to take his life, he's going to he's going to do it. You just and if you you if you try to meet them halfway or they didn't, they didn't. They have to live with someone trained. And suicide companion. That's why I don't understand why he didn't have a celly. This Epstein. So you have to have be trained. And uh, for years and years, I don't care how good you were trained, you had to do every uh, every uh, four months. We had to do eight hours update every four months, mandatory. You know, you did a total of. Hold on, bring this closer to you. I just want to make right. sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. Is that good, Vince? Um, you did a total of 31 years, right? 32 plus Th- years. 32 plus. Was there ever a moment, you know, I'm just, you know, I don't know this. I'm just talking with you. But was there ever a moment where you felt like giving up? Never. You know, I'd sometimes that's a question that's been asked for me from people in all, all times of professions. I mean, uh, 
It's just, it's just, I was blessed that it never entered my mind. I just, I wish I could put that, I could put that in some formula in a potion to give it to these people because I come home and the, so many people uh, have uh, taken their lives and I get, uh, I'm an intervention dash specialist. I'm trained in that. And what, is, what is that? That means you work with uh, individuals that are very pragmatic through a request of the family. You're not an individual or specialist with request from the individuals, usually from the family. So there's a lot that I do that I'm not going to go into what I do with individuals, but there's so much to that today they just want to give up. And I did a whole, I did a whole series on loneliness. I think loneliness is, is a major deterrent factor in people's lives. It could lead to uh, so many things. Loneliness can lead to... Uh, Alcohol, uh, drugs, uh, bad relations, abusive relationships, and even death. You know, you know, it's crazy too because you did thirty-two plus years in prison. You and we'll get into it very shortly. But the the judge and that whole sentence was fucking was, was funny and 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 not handled well. Obviously, um, you never wanted to give up. You kept a, a an open mind, a good attitude. You know, I you know from I, you can tell real quick. You, you're not like one of those people where you hate everyone. Like these fucking guys put me here. This happened. You know, how did you get through? Well, when I was designated to uh, solitary, uh, they kept bringing me, bringing me to the most maximum security prison in America, Marion. I was in Marion. That's how they would justify. I would come back to Marion for a few months and then back out again because marrying prisoners had to be kept. If you if your paperwork said marrying prisoners, you had to be kept in solitary. So they had they had a whole agenda to to keep me in solitary, trying to make me break. They wanted they thought I had secrets of the fully mob, which I didn't. And they just kept relentless, kept doing it and doing it. But when I would be at Marion, it was three hundred three hundred and seventy of the worst prisoners in America. Three hundred and seventy Majority of them had bodies in and out of prison, and uh, out of 370, I was the only one non-prolable. Mm. It was guys in there with two bodies and more, one body. They were all eligible for parole. Whether they got it or not is one thing, but they had the law behind them that they had to go to parole hearing. I had life no parole. I couldn't even go to parole hearing, a nonviolent first offender. You, you, so. You know, knowing that the judge and, and, and the prosecutor or the DA, was it the DA? Uh, um, was the prosecutor. Was the, the prosecutor, judge. the judge, right? Knowing that, you know, that they were in cahoots with trying to find out information for you, or, I, you know, correct me again if I'm wrong, but I heard that uh, the judge or something was connected to some of the other Philly guys or whatever, and they were, they, because of your father, they were trying to give well, a hard sentence. the judge sentence. was friendly with the Irish Boss, he was the Irish boss who was killed, yeah. And my father went to trial for that, was found guilty, but then it was tossed out. Should have been tossed out in 24 months. It took almost 18 years to be tossed out of kind of his last name. But the judge was close with this Irish gangster, so he hated me. He, he well, hated, he hated my, your father, yeah. But and then he, he hated didn't you. Have my father in front of him. So, do, so do you think that they they gave my you this? My father was in state court. I was in fed court. But how did they see? Here's the thing that's crazy. Like, how much weed did you get? Nothing. Catch weed, with that. Nothing. I never got caught with any weed. It was twenty six hundred pound 
You got to remember, my indictment had other conspiracy stuff that was all bullshit. It could have said it could have said cocaine. It could have said marijuana. It could have said uh, speed. But they were conspiracies, so they were all run together. So I did all the conspiracies in five years. But what made me languish was the marijuana. What they brought. I don't. I don't want to go into the leg legality yeah, sure, on the sure. show. It's too complicated. But the life no parole sentence, ladies and gentlemen, was for marijuana. CCE continual criminal enterprise. The government bought three loads of marijuana into Philadelphia consisting of 26 pounds, and they gave it to these guys, and their the warehouse is wired up, and they're telling the guys, isn't Georgie your boss? Are you going to take care of Georgie? And that was repeated, so that's how I got the leader and managerial role of marijuana I never set a finger on. So okay? it was an indictment. But I'm a muddy angel. I did receive money. I did receive money from that conspiracy, but there's only two, basically two cases in America that the FBI actually gave the drugs and let them keep the money. One is Freeway Ricky Ross. Yep, yep. One with the CIA. They made Ricky made a lot of money. Ricky was a whale compared to me, and he was making almost a million dollars a day at one point. Yeah. Time. Now I was, any anyway. In my case, we were only two cases, but I was signed a target. Ricky was never assigned a target. What does that mean, target? Target is capital letters. To become a target in in, in America, United States Attorney General, like a bar, now would have to sign it. There's only one person that can sign it. The United States Attorney General name was French on the Regan, and he signed me a target on the falsification. And that's why the prosecutor hated me because the only shot he could have he wanted to be another. He wanted to be another Giuliani, okay. And he hung his hat on my case, but when he went in front of congressional subcommittee, and he said that he would bring down the fully mob through my indictment, George's indictment, and it never happened. Of course, when the indictment came down, <laughs> the nine Cody fans, well, nobody had a record. Nobody was the mob, so he got sure. a lot of. Egg on his face, and I imagine they told him, "You listen, you could, you didn't deliver. We gave you extra funding. When you're signed a target, you get extra funding, and you didn't do what you said. So the only recourse he had was to uh, pressure me. I mean, inhumane things they did to me. Like what? Like the summer of 1985, they sent me to criminally insane unit in Springfield, Illinois. That's worse." That's worse time than you can imagine, because I was, I was leg ironed. I still have problems with my left ankle today. They leg iron you to the bunk, and my left ankle was leg ironed for the summer of '85. I only could reach the toilet and my food slot, and then they would come and they would handcuff me behind the back, and then they would come in the cell, take the leg irons, and give me a little outside wreck. So that that was a rough summer. And I, I used to have everything's issued paper, paper, paper underwear, paper bedding. How do you wear paper underwear? And well, they do it because they don't want you to, you're in a criminal insane unit. They don't want you to hang yourself. Ceilings are very high anyway, but. How was paper underwear? Any good? No, it was so cold in there that I used to, I used to get toilet paper and I actually mummified myself, provide me like a mummy. <laughs> so, so it was like a blanket, like you, a comfort? Yeah, you got to survive. You better find ways to survive. And then they put me through. Uh, there's a 
There's a thing they used to do. It's called the Stark treatment, Dr. Stark. S-T-A-R-K, Dr. Stark treatment. And they put you through this Dr. Stark treatment, and they do these things to you, and they want to see if you were violent. They do things to see you explode. And uh, and they put me through the Stark treatment, but I knew it was coming, and I never exploded because they want you to explode. Then they'll tag you. Then they'll tag you violent, borderline, criminally insane, and then they can give you drugs that can literally kill you. They can inject you with liquid-based polixin, uh, which takes a it's it's very thick. It takes your your liver hard time to break it down. Yeah. So I, I knew this all by a lieutenant, uh, a lieutenant, uh, an old mob guy was there. I don't know if you know Fat Tony Solano. He's a legend in the city. Fat Tony Solano sent a lieutenant to me in the middle of the night. I was only there the first night and says they're going to give you the stark treatment. Whatever you do, don't go off. Mm. And what they did to me was unbelievable. Like take you out of the cell with leg irons and handcuff, put you in a cold shower for two hours, just running cold water on you for two hours. And then uh, then they would take you outside in the summer. It was the summer of 85 and leave you in blistering heat for hours. And they would bring me food in the middle of the night, maybe your food for the day, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner frozen, solid frozen. So they did these these things to me, and then they would bring food again, uh, three times steaming hot. So they wanted it was this whole program to see if you went off, and I didn't. And you never cracked. No, because I knew they were looking to kill me. Did they outright tell you like, hey, listen, if you give us some information, we'll let you go? Did they outright ask you that type of stuff? Like. At sensing, at the sensing, the judge was in the, indicating it, and we looked at him like he was crazy. I mean, my lawyers, he said, "What's he going? Where's he going? It's totally wrong what he's doing," because prosecutors supposed to get up and say, "Your Honor, we have an agreement with him uh, that he's going to assist the government." The prosecutor never even got up. So it was such it was such of a, 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 a double cross intrigue. The judge, the FBI, the judge. I don't know the judge. The FBI had something on him or something. What about your lawyer? Did your lawyer like— My lawyer was was with them. He was in on the double cross at the time, Bob Simone, Robert Simone. Fuck, is he still alive? Mm -mm. He died of a blood disease. I guess karma didn't do him any good. He died of a blood disease maybe five people in the world get. Wow. (laughs) What about the judge? But I felt—listen, I don't— he was an evil man, but he had he had a son and a daughter that he didn't pay much attention to. And a year after he died, his son committed suicide in Vegas. Then I heard a few years later, I, I didn't hear a good story about the daughter. So when you become this evil person and you have you don't leave a good name for yourself, because I was in prison, but I'm trying to leave a good name for my daughter. So when you do these things, it hurts your children. When you do these evil acts and you think for money, this eventually comes to hurt your children. Sure. You know, it's funny you say that because I at one, you know, I didn't do 32 plus years. I did it a couple of years, many years ago, and my daughter was young and, and, and I missed her first day of school. And I remember I was in the box and I would get a letter from my niece and she would make my uh, 
daughter write a little uh, something and or and she write something about it. And I, I swear to God, man, I would cry like a baby. Um, that was the only thing that kept me going at sometimes, you know. Um, I just felt like a failure. I felt like I couldn't get it right. I felt like a street kid that just didn't know how to turn it around. And you have a daughter. Yeah, my you know, daughter. I lost. Uh, I have a daughter. I lost a son while I was away. I had to mourn him in a cell. It was very difficult. And uh, just the day I found out he passed, I had to graduate a class of 25 uh, it's very stringent, 18th-month program. And my class of 25 needed this graduation because if you graduated this 18-month class, it was a very bad penitentiary, too, but it was a program unit called Bloody Beaumont, Texas. You were, were you well able to get transferred closer to home or use your, your documentation to go back to court? So it was a very important graduation, and... I remember graduating that class with sunglasses on because I was crying. And the warden told me, no, you don't have to do it. I said, no. These guys played their part. I'm going to graduate them. How did uh, your son pass away? Yeah. Motorcycle accident. Yeah. How old was he? 25. Yeah. Well, a good-looking kid you ever want to see. So, uh, you know, you come home like I have come home and you— you hear people's troubles, and and I listen, but uh, I know what troubles are. Yeah, you know, as 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 it's as they give you the sentence, you know, what was for people listening again for the first time to this story that may not even know who you are and are learning now. Like, were you shocked when they said life without parole? Like, were you fucking like, what the fuck is going on here? Never heard of it. No one heard of it. And but, they took you right there that day. Yeah, the whole courtroom was like. Like emotion, emotions, like women were just, some of them were crying, who was almost passing out. It was no, no, never, never been done before in the city of Philadelphia, giving life no parole. You know, did, how many years did, while you were in, did, you know, and you tell me, did, did it ever get to a point where you got, I know this may sound crazy, but did you ever get to a point where you felt comfortable in your like bed of, of institution, well, yeah. not only institution, but meaning like where you like in the beginning. Like I'll give you an example. I remember when I was away in the beginning, there was kids there like, "Fuck, man, it's Friday night. I got to get out." And I'm like, "Friday night, you got ten years. You got you know how many Friday nights you got?" But after like the you know a year or two, you know, he started to what they call I guess bid or 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 get. I know? seen I seen cases where men were institutionalized. Not nice. I seen guys actually during their release they hide. Uh, they scared to come they home. They didn't want to go home. And then I seen guys. Uh, I mean, just one time in Lewisburg, I seen a guy wrap his arms and legs around the bars and refuse to leave. And guards were trying to pry him, pry him, pry him off the bars. And one the lieutenant or captain came by. Said, just leave him alone. Leave him alone. Everyone going about your business. Leave him alone. You know, when you were away, and you were. Uh in the, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the box, the warden would come by. I remember you said that. Is it their job to come by? Like, yeah, twice have to come by. They have to come by the whole, yeah. And I remember you telling me a story that he would come, and when you heard him coming, you. Well, would... I got used to the warden's voice, and the, and this, this, his, always used to say the basically same thing more than one warden. I don't have you back in my hole. It's that prosecutor's office in Philly. 
he never said prosecutor per se. And I used to hear him, and I used to drop down on the floor, and I'd be doing push-ups. I'd say 1,002, 1,003, <laughs> and they wouldn't be looking. And Mark Toronto, you're like that? I says, yeah. And he says, remember, I, I told you, I don't have you. I said, well, you tell that prosecutor to bring it. And I drop back down, and I say, 1,005, 1,006. Because <laughs> I know eventually through the pipeline, it's going to get back to them people in Philly and say, hey, this guy— do a thousand push-ups yeah. a day. Meanwhile, you only did about a dozen. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. You know, you. I remember hearing something too uh, on your case that the warden, or or some wardens, would come to you and say, "Your fucking case is insane." I just went to Colorado with me and my wife, and we walked into a dispensary. Yeah, yeah. Do you well, remember them telling yeah, you? Yeah. Well, every warden, every inmate that pulls up, it's the warden staff. He's got he's got uh, AWs. You have to read. It's called your travel jacket, which is a basic paragraph, and they do a quick summary of what they're going to do with you. And if they feel this has to be more of an in-depth decision on you, they put it on the warden's desk. And many 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 wardens used to say, "Listen, I read your travel jacket. It doesn't make sense. Your sentence doesn't make sense." So. And I said, you know, I'm doing the best I can to fight it. It's crazy to me that nobody tried to, and we'll get into it later on upon your release, but nobody tried to get you out and be a hero before that. You know, knowing that this case smelled funny, knowing that this case— Well, President Obama said, thank for him, that he set the mood because he spoke publicly more than once that he cannot take the life away from a nonviolent first offender. Cannot do that as a country, as a nation. So he set the mood, and then eventually I, f- I fought my way out from him setting the mood. Shouts mm-hmm. to Obama. Yeah. Um, you know You know what? Let's take a quick break. We're sitting here with the one and only George Moderano. George, you know, you don't like it, the cowboy. <laughs> but you know, did you have any other nicknames? No, that was it. Georgie boy? How about that? Can Georgie, well, my neighborhood used to call me Georgie because there was three, three Georges on a block. It was George, Georgie, and George Leak. Nice. So back then, there was no cell phones. Your mother hollered out the front door. Uh, Somebody hollered George. So if it was Georgie, I knew it was me. They they hollered for dinner time. I remember my mother's, I could hear her voice for two blocks down calling me, telling me it's dinner time. I never wanted to, uh, you know, you grew up in a neighborhood where I never wanted to come home. I didn't want to miss anything. Yeah. You know? Internets, we'll be right back. Uh, this is a this is not only a, a, a tremendous episode. This is a story. This is literally one of those podcasts that could be turned into a movie and a docuseries, which I hope I could help push, and uh, or I hope I just see. You know, we'll be right back. Don't go nowhere. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. What up? What up? What up? Internets, what up? You are now locked in. You tuned in. It's going down. I'm with my brother, my homie, my family, my guy, my pies on premium pete it's going down don't go nowhere stay here real talk real artists real guests real conversation real everything don't fucking go nowhere internets we love you premium pete show ghosts internets and we're back sitting down here with the legendary george moderano philadelphia's own right philly's own you know, growing up, it's funny because growing up in Brooklyn and New York and knowing all the mob scene or the, all the criminal scene, I, I never ever, I never really went to Philly until later on in my life. And, 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 you know, as I started to visit Philly over the past 10 years, to me, it's like a small version of the city, 
but it has so many, so much culture, so much roots, so much, you know, even like South Street, uh, you remember it when it wasn't like, you know, uh, the greatest place to be. You know, now it's like a shopping center. You know, it's like the Fulton Street of, uh, you know, Brooklyn. When I was a preteen, preteen and teen, South Street was mostly boarded up. You know, then it started coming back, start basically coming back in the mid uh, mid to late seventies, and then it really really went went through the roof, and it still does okay today. Yeah, yeah. you know, there's it's, there's so many things about you, uh, and I want to I want to direct people even to go to YouTube. Uh, there's a TED talk you did, uh, and we'll get into that in a second about how rare that is. Uh, for someone, you know, that, of what you've been through to be there. But it's funny because I've seen this, uh, you know, now this is like a big video that always uh, tells people stories. And it's funny how it says, this man spent 32 years of a life sentence in prison for weed. You know, now he just opened up a CBD cafe in Philadelphia, you know. Um, I want to get to some more of these stats, which is which is crazy because, you you know, again, being the First person in the world, you know, says George Monterano was arrested in Philadelphia in 1982 after being caught by the FBI with a truck full of cannabis, right? What Monterano says was about 2,600 pounds of bud. At the advice of his attorney, Monterano pleaded guilty to a litany of drug charges, thinking he would only get 10 years in prison, okay? But the judge gave him life without parole, you know, something we went over. Um, I mean, there's so many more stats that I want to continue to go over. You know, I think about this story. I think about, uh, uh, you know, in this day and age, how could this not be on Netflix? You know, how could this not be on Hulu? You know, and and, and we're going to get to that. Let me just continue with some more of this, uh, uh, you know, stats that we have here because it's it's really crazy. According to an MSNBC report, in 2015, there were at least 67 people serving life sentences, okay, uh, for selling cannabis, Think about that. During his 32 years in prison, much had changed in the U.S. surrounding cannabis and his and, and its legality. So think about that. Look at all the Colorado. Look at all the uh, uh, other places that become decriminalized, that dispensaries, medical cards. Um, you know, I, I remember hearing that you had like a little radio in jail uh, that you would listen to because you were allowed to have that. And the things that you faced... All with all, all with a smile. All never blaming anybody. All never complaining. Uh, you know. Um, you know. All with being respected by a lot of people. I mean, it, it's you know. Again, I bring up the point of like the warden saying that he just visited Colorado with his wife uh, and went into a dispensary. I mean, he, the warden didn't say that he purchased anything, but he did say that he visited. And it's crazy that you would be away that long. Um, you know. Finally, after thirty-two appeals. In as many years, Monterano was released at the age of 65 under the DOJ's Compassionate Release Program. And you just opened, and we'll go over that later, the Hip Hemp uh, Cafe, a coffee shop and CBT, uh, CBD uh, boutique in uh, on South Street, off of South 7th Street, I believe. 7th Street, right before in Philadelphia. South, Philadelphia. When, I, when you hear me say those things, it's like I fucking narrated a fucking movie for you right there. Uh, if you get to Netflix, let them use my voice for a couple of uh, uh, things. Well, we're hoping we get there because there's a river stories connected to me. But uh, no, but what do, you, what, do you, what do you think when you hear all that shit? Honestly, because George, listen, we don't know each other that long. I feel for a lot of the shit you went through. You're a stand-up guy. I mean that. You could tell when someone's aces. 
I'm not saying, you know, that it doesn't, you don't get any, like, I'll be honest with you, I only did three years sometimes when I think of, like, being free and never going back, man, sometimes almost a tear comes to my eyes. Yeah. Like, fuck that. I will never want to go through that shit again. Do, do, what, do you, what do you think when you hear some of those stats and what you've been through? Well, you know, I've been, since I'm home, I've been in a lot of stages throughout this country, and uh, uh, I didn't know I was that, I can come across that well public speaking, thank God I can, but... Uh, many, many stages in the country. I always stop in mid-stride, mid as I used to do my classrooms. My classrooms were full for many, many, many years. When you prison. say classrooms, when you were in jail. I'm in jail. My classrooms were, were full were because teaching? who I was, and I had a, a reputation of, I thought I can uh, try to assist you to have a better life when you came home, if you came home. But I always used to stop mid-stride in my classes, and I used to say, you know, don't be a gap. Don't be in awe of me. Listen to my message because better men than me have died in prison. And I still say that on stage today around America. I mean, it's not about me. It's about my message because better men than me and women. Everyone thinks prison is a guy's thing. Not so. Women have suffered just as much as men. So better men than men are men and women have died in prison than I. Mm. You know, we think about your your, your prison history. You think about your TED Talk. I want to direct people to go to YouTube. TEDx Talk. In TEDx University Talk. Of Pennsylvania. And explain how rare that is for people listening. First of all, internet, go on YouTube, check the TEDx Talks. Um, I believe you were one of, and correct me, you were one of the first people to, uh, with your sentence, to talk at Wharton, was it Wharton? I, I believe I was. Prestigious a, college. I was the first prisoner from my type of background as a prisoner to speak at the at TEDx Talk University Penn at Annenberg Theater. And then I was, uh, which I'm very proud of, was invited back to the Wharton School of Business to address the students there. And uh, we did a we did a film called Live to Be Remembered, E.D., Live to Be Remembered. You can Google that, and you know, I'm very proud of that. Mm-hmm. And we're friends today. Some of them students today, we continue a friendship. It's a beautiful thing. I, I mean, I, I watched that, and I could just feel the power. I remember he came out with the chains and threw him on the floor. Yeah. It's a powerful fucking video, man. Internet, make sure you go to YouTube and check out that TEDx talk uh, by George. You know, as we move down in your journey of life, you know, who who, who would think that in uh, we're only at, uh, say, 47 minutes that we're already documenting your life? Is that is that weird to hear all these things? Uh, Because this is your life, man, that you, you, you've been living, man. Yeah, when you live it, it's it's just you lived it, you know. Uh, did you want to be anything else though? Meaning, like, did you want to be like, uh, you know, you worked in restaurants with the family, you know, then you you know you got into the weed business, whatever, you know. Right, right. But did you want to be something else? Did you want to be like a fucking piano uh, uh, man or a fucking construction guy? Did you want to like? Did you would you want any of that? It's difficult when you want when your people are always following. I was always a leader. Uh, I don't know why I just evolved that way in life. So when you're a leader, you just you really don't have a want because you have to pay attention to the issue at hand. You have to pay attention to who's following you. So believe me, uh, they always say it's uh, it's lonely at the top. Well, I believe that's true. Mm. It's an old, old saying. You know, a lot of people who think of your father, uh, the legend, Long John Monterano, they think about what an earner he was. You know, how much money he... Uh, People say, he had, uh, again, I'm just talking, correct me if I'm wrong, me and you are friends. Um, 
people would say that he, he had more money than the world. You know? <laughs> he was in a when the Forbes magazine back in the mid eighties, eighty six, eighty seven, they did Forbes magazine, the richest mobster mobsters in America. There was fifty of them. I think my father was in the middle there somewhere. <laughs> but uh, you know. Did you know those other guys like uh, Angelo Bruno or Nicky Scafo? He Nikki was my Scarfo? godfather, Angelo Angelo Bruno. Bruno's your godfather. Yeah, John Goddard was my cellie for two years. That's right. T- yeah. t- t- tell us about that. How, how was that? Like, you're in, you're in the cell? He John was in? a very astute man. The books he read, uh, people don't know, were amazing books. Just the books that he read. Uh, very, very studious books. And uh, John was, uh, you know, he's a legend. He was a living legend. He's a legend today. He was a... I lived with him for two years, one year, basically, 22-hour lockup. Mm. Gentleman uh, to the end, and uh, but you know he was a he was a gangster's gangster. Did you ever get to see him face to face, or just through the walls? And uh... no, we were in a cell together. For okay, two, okay, for two really years. nice, nice. And we were cellies. Now, now he walked into you, or you were already in there already? I was already in there. He got indicted, and actually didn't make bail. And uh, I just happened to be, we lived in a maximum security unit. You had the commission trial that was there. You had the Westies commission trial. And what did he say when he came up to you? Did he know who you are? Did he know your father? Yeah, he knew. Listen, they, he, he, uh, he already had me. John was nobody's fool. He already had me checked out before he even sure, got sure. there. Sure, sure. He did his homework on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. You know, he knew you were a good right, fella. Right, Now, Andrew Bruno is your godfather, right? Mm. What kind of man uh, was Andrew? He was a very good man. <clears throat> a very good man. Family man. I mean, when people think of Philadelphia and they think of, like, gangsters, gangsters, or my, you always hear that name, Andrew or Bruno, or you hear... Well, what happened to Philly, they, Philly wasn't a violent town for many... Sure. ...for two decades, and then it just exploded. It made the news all around America. So much violence. A lot, a lot of, a lot, a lot of killings. It's, it was a town that was not used to it. And I see my... Took my godfather's life, eventually took my father's life. So you know the streets don't love you back. What about Scafo? Did you did you know Nicky Scafo? Were you cool with him? I knew him. I knew him. He he died in prison. I think his his some of his decisions could have been thought out more. You know. You know, all these years you're in uh, prison. Probably at this time, probably maybe uh, twenty two years. George Monterano in prison. You know, 2002 comes along, and and correct me if I'm wrong with the dates, but your father uh, was released, um, came home, and... Uh, well, he came home in 1999. He got shot in 2002, got ambushed. In, in the middle of the street, in, in, in yeah. broad daylight? Yeah, he made it, he made it to the hospital. Uh, the surgery... They removed the three bullet wounds. He was pretty, surgery was pretty successful, but <clears throat> uh, while he was there, I think the second week, he caught the staff. And that's what basically killed them. You know, where where were you? I mean, obviously, what prison were you in? I was in the bad prison called Pollock, Louisiana at the time. And how did you find out? Uh, I got a call. I got a call about 9.30 in the morning. To the, to the staff office. It was uh, one of the attorneys, family attorneys, and I was told. He was alive when I was told. Mm. How did you go about, like, your day that day? Like, did... Well, uh, 
I was the warden sent word to the cell block that if I needed to make extra calls, I could. You know, the family was calling there. So, because I was already, te- you know, for decades I was a mentor educator. So I always had a good rapport uh, with the staff in the right light. Uh, I worked with them. I wouldn't work for them. So uh, that's a very important statement. I work with them. I wouldn't I work like for that, them. I like that, yeah, for sure. You know, I'm, I remember, again, during some research or just knowing, you know, history over the years, um, what is the... And people have reported on this. I mean, I don't know if it's true. You're, you're here to make sure it is. But people say that... Uh, I forgot the guy's name, but they said that he... Your father... Uh, I guess he's seen another guy in jail, and 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 they thought it was for, um, you know, he he thought that some other guy flipped in jail, and 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 that's why they came after your father or something like that. Did, for people listening to the story, no, they, they ambushed the truth. I don't know if verbatim, but my father was spending a little time in Sicily. He had cousins they was building, and my, you know, fear throughout the centuries. Fear when they fear fear gets you killed faster than being not feared. So they feared him. And probably, like I said, I'm only guessing he was in Sicily. Maybe they thought he was putting something together there to bring it here, you know. So anyway, you know, he was a, that was his life. He was a, he was a, he was a gangster. Yeah. You know, so, so he, 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 uh, your father is, uh, shot broad daylight and killed, um, you're in prison, the warden. You know, how did the COs treat you? Like, did the COs like have any like uh, heart for you? You know what I mean? Did they well, ever... the old C- COs have been around, knew knew because I've been around, and treat they would you tell, more than just they a, would tell yeah. you this and just you know let this leave this guy alone. Whatever, he, you know, I always ask things that I can do, not not do, within the rules. So, you know, fun. You know, as you know, you did three years. Phone calls are very important when sure. there's. Mail. This tragedy at the, at the house, yeah. I heard that uh, you uh, did a eulogy for your father when he passed yeah, away. Yeah, I did a eulogy. Uh, him, The warden approved the eulogy. Uh, and it was all set up with the funeral parlor, and it was uh, you know, a very large gathering at the funeral parlor. I came live from the prison. I so what they a, do like and, uh, a, and I did a like poem. A TV, it was called or... Lion. I wrote a poem called uh, <clears throat> Lion's Love Last." Can't remember it verbatim right now, and it was published in a paper mm. from that eulogy. Mm. Lions love last. Mm. You know, it's when you think about the journey. You know, I know you told me before that you know you didn't think of ever quitting, and you just kept focus and you know kept yourself in your composure. You know, did did your your wife or your you know I don't know if you, my wife passed while you were away. Two thousand, yeah. Lost her to cancer, then my boy, then my dad. Three years in a row. We call it in, we call it a neighbor getting hit with the right hand. So sure. I got hit with three right hands in a so, row. So here we go. We start getting to the point of, oh, we spoke uh, briefly about it before, but Obama uh, pushes uh, forward the statement of trying to get people out. Yeah, he said it more than one minute in speeches. How did you take us through the day that you knew Somebody who's serving a life sentence without no parole is going to get out. I found out at October 12th at 7.30. My lawyers called the institution 
And it just was a day I was busy with my classes, and I didn't get around to the phone till that night. And then I was told that the order was signed for my release. And I said, okay. When, so is, I get, when your order is signed after 4 o'clock on a Friday, you're not getting out to Monday. Uh, so the order was signed, so I knew I had the Monday. But but wait, wait, wait. We can't jump over that. You knew... When, when, you didn't get, like, chills down your back? Like, you didn't... No, I said, when I'm out, I'm out, because... Because you're never out till you're out? What happened is I had two old-timers. They were in their 80s. That I need, they'd been procrastinating. There was a law that just came down, two-point reduction, and I was trying to help these two old-timers with life sentences... And they were procrastinating giving me their paperwork so I can do their motion. So I really didn't have time to think about me because I had to scram, scramble all Saturday and Sunday. I had, to, I had to write the first draft. I had them typed up. I had to revise them. I had to make copies. I had to put them in envelope stamp. It was these two old, two old guys. Two old, <clears throat> I had to do that. And I finally got all that done. I wasn't even thinking about myself because I don't want to leave them hanging. And then f- Monday morning, I knew I would probably be called up to, to leave in about 10. So I had to get up early and, and put the, their, their motions in the legal mailbox. And that's when it finally hit me. And I remember How did you I feel put, like? What, what? I put the motions. And I, f- I was trying to get this done for these guys. And I just backed up against the wall you know, a little bit out of the way, and I just, wow, I'm leaving. I got a little teary-eyed, you know. And uh, but the, well, the funny, funniest thing, I shouldn't call them funny. They're not funny. And uh, I find out, I hang up the phone Friday night. I just find out after 32-plus years I'm going home, and I'm headed to my cell, and the guy says, George, they want you out front. <clears throat> so I said, who's that? He said, the gay community. So I go out there and I says, what's up? And it was just something happened in, in 2010. There was a lot of positive gay stuff in the media. I forget what it was. Maybe gay marriages just was ruled on or something. But some positive stuff. So they wanted to have a gay day in the yard. And they wanted me to present it to the captain. Because I looked out for gays over the years in prison, I thought that they 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 they're doing their time, and they if they wanted to hook up, that was their business. But sure. to be abused, I wouldn't let that happen. Not in my cell block. I'm not, I don't believe in that. They're still a human being. But anyway, uh, so I quickly try to get myself out of it. I said, "Well, listen, you got to write it, write exactly what you want." Have it typed out, present it nicely, then I'll bring it. And I thought, <clears throat> I wasn't going to see them anymore. The, I actually instructed a buddy of mine, when they do come back with it, you take care of it. And, but guess what? The next, the next morning they came back. <laughs> and never forget Saturday morning, I had to take their what they wanted to the, the lieutenant's office. And a lot of lieutenants knew I was going. He said, George, what are, you, what are you bothering with this? You're going home. I said, what do you, listen, just read it over. If you decide to give it the okay, give it the okay. But at least I did my part. So I, I, I'm trying to say, ladies and gentlemen, I, had no, I kept getting hit with things. I couldn't think about myself to that 
early in the morning Monday. And what happens? They open. They they. Well, okay. no. Uh, Take us through that. Like it's the first. The whole night, place know. was in a was in a whole place was anxious. The staff, the wardens. In order to get out of prison, your court order must go to Grand Prairie, Texas first. That is the your hub for releases. So your paperwork has to go to Grand Prairie, Texas. From Grand Prairie, Texas, comes back to the institution. Faxed. So it gets got to get faxed there from the court and fact. And sometimes those facts can go two hours and sometimes them facts can go days. So the warden on a Friday always left. He was out of that institution by 1 o'clock. He stood. He said, George, because if we don't get you out by 4 o'clock, then we have to go into a different, whole different program to get you out by midnight. So we were all, they were all trying to expedite. <clears throat> get me out of there. All the staff. And my sister, two sisters and my lawyer was waiting in the parking lot. And prison, ladies and gentlemen, even though you have a wall or a fence, you have these perimeter trucks. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, six, 365 days a year, two perimeter trucks go around and around the prison. And the perimeter trucks are actually beeping their horns and giving the high sign. So the whole, the whole prison wanted me out. Matter of fact, the warden had to shut the prison down when I had to go from my cell block to the door the, it's called R&D, uh, receiving and departure. And he didn't want 400 guys following me there. So it was a big day. No, oh, you can't stop that, George. You get to the gate? Did they open the gate? What? what? They opened the gate. Uh, I refused. I mailed all my personal stuff home, but I refused to mail my writings. So I said, I'm not going out of this prison without my writings. So I had boxes and boxes of my writings. I don't know, seven, eight boxes. So I just whirled the cart up to the parking lot. And once you come past that last gate, you're free. And my two sisters naturally wept. My lawyer's... He's in awe. He's snapping pictures. Theodore Simon, great attorney, one of my attorneys. He's the one who got Amanda Knox out of Italy. Wow. That case. Yeah, very, very. He's an international attorney. So then you just drove home. Where were you, in Florida or something like that? I was in Florida and away, going away home. I How'd never held a cell phone home? in life because cell phones weren't invented. Wait, you were released. What year were you released? 2015. So there was an iPhone, right? I don't know. I had two phones going down the highway, talking to everybody in the world, people from all over the country. How did that feel, man? It felt annoying. <laughs> I don't know how to use the damn phones. Did you stop and, and get something to eat on the highway? No, we went home. We had, we, we had, because uh, I told the family I'm coming home Monday, so they, they were prepared with dinners and stuff like that. Let me ask you, uh, not to get all personal, but uh, you were away for uh, 32 plus years. You know, you're an older guy, but you're still a guy. When you came home, were you able to ro uh, sow your royal oats? <laughs> I got around to that. All right. Actually, how did, uh, how did that feel? I used to be a nice-looking guy back then. You still are, man. You're a handsome fella. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's a funny story, but hopefully in the book or movie. When I first got out, I, I had a little bit of a phobia. I wouldn't sleep inside, so I put it... My sister put a tent in the yard. Why is that? Why? 
I just wanted to be outside. I want to look at the stars. It's Florida. And I just want to look at, uh, it's October. It's not that hot. I just want to sleep and look up at the stars. So after a few days, I said, well, it's time to get go out. So I get dressed. I bought some clothes. I went downtown St. Pete. And uh, I met someone. And uh, and uh, I took her back. I said, your place or mine? She said, oh, your place. Because I lived that way. And I took her back. And it was a pretty blue tent. We had all these little lights around it. And... Uh, Actually, she thought I was nuts because it was a nice house and I'm living in a tent in the back. And uh, well, anyway, she liked that tent. <laughs> did, did, did it feel the same way? Did you feel like you were born? I, I said this and I only did three years, but I felt like a born-again virgin. Does that make sense or no? Well, you know, I did the best I could with the little I had. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, as we continue on with this journey— and you're home now, and you're in Florida. When did you When did you make your way back to Philadelphia? Well, I wasn't. I had no intention to come back to Philly due to the fact that my cousin has the famous Martorana restaurant. He's in the Martorana's in Fort Lauderdale, Vegas. What's his Atlantic name? City, uh, with the Pittsburgh. meatballs. Yeah. A- 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 yeah. So I was going to do a real Florida thing, but then my mom started. Uh, my mom wasn't feeling good. She had a little bit of heart trouble, so. I said, you know, she looked there for me after all those years, so I came back to Philly to look after her. You know, you dealt with a lot throughout the years. A lot of people I speak to, you know, um, I give them some of my experiences and I hear their experiences. You know, I remember first time when I was away, uh, Christmas morning, I woke up and it was like a regular day. And I was like, oh, it's Christmas. And people were like, Get the f- go, go back to fucking bed. Like, and... You spend 32-plus years, birthdays, Christmases, Thanksgiving, Halloween, Valentine's Day. Forget about all those other fucking... But what about Christmas? What about your birthday, Thanksgiving? Well, I got a good story about Christmas. Go ahead, tell me. Uh, I pride myself saving many lives in prison uh, through sensible negotiations. And I was in Marion uh, in 84, uh, worst prison in the country probably. A maximum security prison uh, it was actually legal what they were doing to us. They didn't have a policy, but uh, this uh, guy named uh, Ray he he uh, makes some hooch and gets himself a little drunk, and they, we're locked in. You know, we're not coming out. And he hollers out, "Merry Christmas!" Very loud. It's Thirty-four guys on the sub block. It just so happens if I uh, find out that the, they're going to kill him for saying Merry Christmas. The two, two very tough gangs that have no problem taking your life, they were going to kill him, and uh, I just couldn't see him kill him for saying Merry Christmas because these guys were so hardcore, and we're only allowed to buy one jar of peanut butter a week. Peanut butter is important when the food's not good. And at times it wasn't good. So you get one jar of peanut butter a week, it's important. So I had, I negotiated this life for 12 jars of peanut butter. Mm. That's a true story. Really? And I told him next time, uh, you know, Ray, I got to go 12 weeks without no peanut butter. So <laughs> you keep your mouth shut next time you get drunk. You know, speaking of that, you know, being away for that long, you know, I'm sure there's, you're a good guy and you're not a move. But I'm sure people try to test you. 
Yeah, you remember any fights in there? I get into. You know, I'd say I guess you know everyone has a an angel. Some angel must have looked for me going from I went from solitary uh, right to most worst prison in in uh, in America, and that's where all the gang leaders were: Aryan Brotherhood, Mexican Mafia. Uh, you name it, bike gangs. The leaders were all there, and we just and I got to know them, and I don't know how I was telling them what's the best thing to do, not about their gangs, about life in general. And so when I left there, word was sent out throughout the Bureau of Prisons. People want to understand prison great rhinos. It's 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 very precise. It, it can travel. It can get messages. It's the best way to say that. If I had two towers, high towers, hundred foot towers, and they were hundred yards apart, and I had one prisoner in one tower with a match, and hundred yards away I had another prisoner with a cigarette, they would both smoke. Mm. So the intelligence they have in this American prison system. So the word, word just got out, and everywhere I went, I just. And that's how. But I said, I you know, I used it. I used the prestige I had for good, not evil, mm. which was very, very easy to do. I seen guys take that and turn it into evil, but I refused to be evil. You know, were you uh, after thirty two years? Were you scared when you came home, like to live regular life? I mean, you got iPhones. Oh, absolutely. You got yeah. fucking social media. Oh yeah, I just. You got, you got shit that you never. I mean, for, that you never, that for you never, till today, that you never I still of. have to run every morning. I run up very over or cold shower every morning and run just to get the get myself adjusted to the new day every morning. Cold shower and running. I don't care if it's ten degrees. So just so thankful to keep going, keep going. Now what about uh so there's no parole, no you know, do you have a parole officer or? I had a parole uh for three years but I got off early. I felt after uh this is important. I wrote a one-page letter. I wrote a because uh, fortunately I had to write a little bit. I wrote a one-page letter explaining the truth to my attorney, and uh, basically saying it's been 35 years I've been living in fear. Uh, what we're the only country in the world that keeps a living person, a human being, in fear. You're in fear for 30 from prison, the paper. It's inhumane. You know, we, we in our zoos, we, we, we don't have that situation. Animals are looked at where they have to live with the right environment. So I wrote this beautiful letter. And the last thing I said, if you, if you care about me, you would show this to you have to show it. I didn't say show it to the prosecutor, show it to the judge. Anyway, he walked it in to the judge with the prosecutors uh, and judge read it. And I was off for probation two days later. For 35 years, I was cut with their claws in me. Mm. Who, what country does that? Who does that? Now, when you spoke about, uh, is that something that you're taking up further? You spoke about like a civil suit or something like that? Is that? Well, some young legal minds have, after they looked into the stories, you know, we could bring civil action, what they did to you. Because one, once my prosecutor, he did so much evil, once he retired, I don't know how he did it. He left an FBI agent in place that went 12 years over his retirement, and his main objective was make sure I die in jail. So they did so much evil 
in my case that they didn't want me out. So mm. much evil. Mm. You know, back to your father. Um, when you were growing up, what was, you know, uh, what was, I know you mentioned about memories, but what, what, what was some of the stuff? Like, how was Christmas in your household like? You know what I mean? Oh, I had a good, good tradition family, good family. I had three sisters. It was always about the girls, you know. What was Pop's, uh, do you remember, like, something he bought you for Christmas? Uh, do you remember, was he, was he uh, somebody who was, you know, uh, outlandish with his money? Or? No, no, he was very, I worked. You had to work. The girls, the girls were okay. We didn't spoil them, but I worked. Yeah. Everything, yeah. You know, when, even back then when you think about when you were getting into weed and getting into that business, you know, was what was your first love that you fell in? Fell in did you like weed or you just sat on it because? It no, was I love weed because for me, as a, you know, I was at Woodstock. Yeah, I was at Woodstock, and uh, you know, I think all all teens, uh, preteens and teens, go through uh, a mental anguish, and uh, you know, have to find a way out. Some people find it through sports, uh, you know, a good friend. The right girlfriend. I just, I smoke smoke weed and things didn't bother me. Yeah. How different is the weed today versus? Wow. You know, did you like it? Well, actually, wow. that's the thing. We spoke about the first time you sold your Royal Oats when you came home after thirty two years. What about the first time you ever smoked weed again? Well, I took I took a I took a stance on that when uh, when you when you get out, you had to report to your probation in forty two hours. I reported to the probation office in Florida and the federal probation office. And I went with my attorney because my attorney hung out down there. I said, I want you to come. I laid a sort of like, didn't lay a trap, but I just told them my my attorney was in shock. I said, listen, right here and now, if you're going to give me piss tests, I, said, I put my hands on the table. I said, cuff me up, take me back. I didn't tell them that I was going to smoke weed. But after 32 plus years, and I didn't, I didn't get high in prison because if you get one infraction, it would have lost all my credibility from my classes. And I used to graduate 400 students every season of the year, so I had to be, I had to be above board. So after all those years, and you think I wasn't going to get high when I came out and smoked some weed, so I said, "If you're going to piss me, put me back." And she got up from the desk and went somewhere and came back and said, no, we're not going. She went and talked to somebody. I told him, put me back. Do you remember the first time you uh, smoked? Wow, man. I, I, I must have been... A joint? The next day, took a couple of hits and I ran 12 miles. <laughs> really? I was a runner, but I ran 12 miles. Did you say, holy shit, this weed is way more powerful than the shit I had? Well, I kept going and going, so I ran out of road. I don't know where I was going. I had to call my sister to come and get me. (laughs) (laughs) Tell Stone I was. I just kept running. That must have been some good weed. (laughs) You know, as you've been home um, four years now, you know, you— It's not quite four. Not quite four yet. Okay, three and a half. Home three and a half years. You've done a lot. One of the things you did is explain to the people about this. Was it cannabis for guns or? Yeah, you can see it online, ladies and gentlemen. Cannabisforguns.com. Uh, you can't go .org because you use the word cannabis. I just got tired of 
so much uh, inner city violence, the sense that it's killing. It has a it has a <clears throat> bio page and explains how it works. Doesn't cost anybody anything, but I believe we have to be innovative, make new things happen in America because nothing's working. Nothing's working. Our cities, hundreds are being killed in one year span. Nothing's working. So uh, I'm trying to work with some city government to get it started. If I can get one city to work with me for cannabis, for guns, I think it'll be a domino effect. I'm not saying we're going to solve the problem, but we can bid a dent in it by taking a lot of guns off the streets. You also opened up uh, on South Street, South 7th Street in Philadelphia, the Hip Hemp Cafe. I went there. Let me tell you something. Um, you had a massage girl that does a CBD oil massages. There's a bunch of different products. That CBD coffee. Uh, I seem like the neighborhood coming in and supporting and buying stuff. You know, even it's crazy. I even seen an electric chair. Yeah, I had that built. Why? Well, I could have bought one online. The one the one they wanted twenty one thousand. The reason it was so expensive because it killed one hundred fifty people. I wasn't going to put some some uh, piece of furniture that killed people. But in 19, it's symbolic. Everything I do is symbolic in my life because, again, it's the message. And uh, in 1984, before I got to the, September 19th, when I got the life, no parole, the judge actually, he lived in this private club in Center City, very wealthy club, and he was calling around to other judges and lawyers to help him word where he can give me the death penalty under treason. He said, I was treasonous to America for bringing marijuana to Philadelphia. Mm. <clears throat> Imagine that, ladies and gentlemen. Treason. They wanted to execute me. So, which it wouldn't have fly. If he ch- tried to sentence me that, big, the biggest legal minds in, in the world would have came to my defense. But anyway, so that's why I built the electric chair. I go into your <clears throat> back uh, patio yard in the Hip Hemp Cafe in Philly, and there's pictures of all the jails that you've been through in your 32-plus years. Well, I couldn't put all the pictures, but I put some of the worst ones. Give us—I mean, there's so many, but when you say, what's your worst memory in in a a jail? Well, I wouldn't say I've been through riots, fires. Fires are no joke. I've been in cell blocks. When the cell block's on fire, you better know what to do. What do you do? Well, you better get that blanket and flush it in that toilet— and drape it over you like a tent, hot, wet blanket, and keep flushing the toilet so you can breathe. Because what kills you is not the fire, it's the smoke. <clears throat> they will kill you. Kill you. That smoke is so, so heat. It'll kill you in 20 minutes. So I've been through. I've been through. I don't go to crowds today. I've been invited by friends to ball games, you know, Eagles games, Phillies games, etc. I won't. I won't go to. You know, I'll like- go on stage and I'll speak to 30,000 on stage. And after I speak, I'll try to leave the area as quick as I sure. can. Been on many stages, big audience, but I don't like crowds. Yeah, do so many prison rides. You know, did you <clears throat> did you ever come to a moment in those thirty two years where you thought you were going to die? Wow, so many times. You know, when I come off a stage, I get people pat me on the back and who shakes my hand and say, "Hey, it was a great speech." I usually don't say nothing. Maybe if I really, maybe go have a drink with someone after that. And, oh, someone heard me speak more than once. And I say, you know, 
you think that's a great speech? And I said, oh, yeah. And I said, you know, the greatest speech is going in the prison yard up to the shot call and his gang and saving this guy's life. That's totally wrong. And I did that more than once. That's the speech. You know, the the journey continues, man. You know, for somebody who had life in prison without parole, uh, where, the, you know, which is unheard of, which is insane. And uh, thanks again. We Like we spoke about before, when Obama opened that gate, uh, you, you were able to push forward with that, you know. Um, well, it's still not done. I thank him, but it's still not done. This President Trump a few months ago signed the Prison Reform Act, and it's still not it doesn't address the third and second, third, or fourth offender, whether he's violent or not violent. It addresses the, the low level, the nonviolent first offenders. I'm praying that I can get some political clout behind me and do bring the cameras into the penitentiaries because as we're sitting here right now, probably a dozen pen- federal penitentiaries locked down due to violence and gangs. Uh, the American people doesn't know they're based, some of them are killing fields. And uh, as a matter of fact, I gave a speech before I left to a lot of women staff. Uh, you know, a lot of women, you know, their mothers, uh, single mothers, and they, they have to go what's called hazardous duty pay. Uh, they'll go from a lower institution just to go to the the, the more the, the penitentiaries and get hazardous duty pay. And I told them to stop doing it mm. because uh, it's going to be very, very, very violent. And it's today. It's very violent. I get I get inroads uh, through the prison grapevine. The gang situation is terrible. Matter of fact, I think one one warden, the warden that walked me out, he said he's retiring because he just got notice from Washington that his gang cap went from forty to a hundred. Mm. So if you have eight nine gangs and your prison only holds eighteen nineteen hundred, half of it or more than half of it's gangs. What do you have? And it's the American public don't know that. But what I want to put in place, if I can get in front of Congress, a congressional subcommittee, is put in place, as a human being, I don't care how many years he's got, what he has to do, he should, he or she should be looked at every five years, et cetera. They must be looked at. What, it, what has he or she been doing? I have a program in place right now uh, in Florida, that a lot of I didn't I leave the door open for inmates to get a hold of me, especially if they're coming home. But how do they do that? Seven out of ten after they reach out for me, I don't hear from them no more because I reply back my standard reply back, and I'm very stringent on it. I want to see your progress report. I want to see what you've been doing. I want to see your program. I want to see your conduct. Because I'm not going to get behind you if you've been screwing up, you've been dealing drugs, you stabbed two guys, you've been in the hole for years. But if I see you've been programming, you have educated yourself, then I put the little bit of connections I had behind you and try to help. Let me ask you something. For somebody who got life in prison without parole for fucking selling weed, first non, you know, longest and first uh, time a non, you know, non-violent offender, why the fuck do you want to help so many people? Well, <clears throat> you have to. You know, I, like I said, I was at the worst places, and I looked in men's eyes that were beasts. And uh, <clears throat> two things are going to happen when you're in the places. Uh, you could put your two two index fingers up, your left, and then your right. And there's 
Your left is your beast and right is your better. There's no in between. Either you're going to become beast or better. And there's, there's nothing more profound to an individual's thought than look in the eyes of a beast, of a human beast. So I seen more than once and I said, I'm not going to be like that. Mm. When it's all said and done, what do you want the George Monterano legacy to be? I would just want it to be messages, however we can get across through my branding, uh, my everyday life. Hopefully the books are starting to get back out there. Maybe through, uh, PD, you'll produce a show. Why not? And, 31 uh, fucking books. We have, to, we have to use it to help others. I mean, stories are great. Stories are great. Robin Hood's great. Yeah. Okay. But, you know. <laughs> How hard is it to publish a book behind bars? Very hard. Very How the hard. fuck did you do it? I'm the first inmate ever was locked down, locked up and shipped twice for publishing. I published a, a, an internet site in London called Mob King Pen, P-E-N.com. And it was short stories. It was doing well. We were selling short stories for like two bucks. And I was locked up and shipped twice for that, for expressing my freedom of speech. I was the first inmate ever in America that have that have a, a website that you can. Uh, uh, we didn't have PayPal back then. You just mail in, whether two like bucks, a money order yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah. And we uh, we downloaded to we, and I got locked up and shipped twice, and finally one attorney out of Maryland, uh, actually physically went to the Bureau of Prisons and said, "Enough's enough." Enough's enough. It's freedom of speech. And he's not writing about security. I'm not writing anything about how to escape from prison. It was just good stories. Mm. Fiction. <clears throat> but I was punished for that. It's crazy. After all these years in prison, you know, sometimes people come and visit you or support you that you never could think of. And then the people that you <clears throat> think are going to be there aren't there. Right, not saying all, but you understand what I'm saying. Oh yeah. Were there yeah. some people who came and put money on your books, or came and visited you, or did something nice that you? I always that you were very had. I never burned my bridges. You know, I never burned my bridges. So, I always had. Uh, I had a lot of support, but I didn't make it where it was ridiculous. I'm not gonna. If you're my friend, Pete, I'm not gonna tell you you got to fly three thousand miles to visit. You know. Sure. Sure. So, well, did you have any lobster while you were away there? Excuse me. Lobster. You have lobster night. <laughs> no. No, you didn't have any any good uh, no, chicken I'm, palm. I, or I lived basically for years. I lived on apples, honey, and coffee. Really? Yeah, and peanut butter. Yeah, peanut butter. All right. So as we wind this episode down, I want internets worldwide. If you uh, are live in the Philly area, if you live in Jersey or live in New York, take a trip out to Philadelphia. Check out the Hip Hemp Cafe on South Seventh Street in Philadelphia. Google it. Um, Thirty-one books, man. Thirty-one books. Uh, there's a bunch of other things you're doing now. You know, you're on social media? Yeah, yeah. George Moderano? It's on Facebook, Instagram. There's a lot of videos out there. I like... Uh, <coughs> you like, like it? I used to write an awful lot in the cell, but I'm not in the cell anymore. So I'm enjoying... a busy, busy, and I'm enjoying life. So I do an awful lot of short films. Awful lot. Mm. Hundreds out there. And it basically, like I said, oh, I try to do good stories... With a message. Yeah. Do you, you, you ever go back to church? You know, I do my church thing. I love early in the morning. If you can get a door open, find a church open. Yeah. yeah I love, I love, uh, 
any type of cathedral. There's one in my neighborhood, very old. I go there. Matter of fact, I might be. I did a video in there. You ever go to confession? I always find that so weird. Meaning, like growing up and going to Catholic church, you know, I was like, I got this priest telling me, I'm like, you know, forgive me, Father, if I have sinned. The last time I've been to confession was, you know, whatever, five years ago. And he's like, go ahead. And I'm like, yeah, I robbed two cars. I fucking stole ten thousand from you know this. I did that. And, and then he's like, okay, uh, go say five uh, hail marys and four. I'm like, holy shit, that's it. I always found that to be weird. No, you know, and, and as a Catholic. Well, politics and religion, it's it's a difficult thing. Difficult thing. And yeah, there was church in uh, in when, when you yeah we had to go chapels. Church? Yeah, I. Uh, I participated in a lot of stuff. I did you. a lot of plays for the chapels. That's beautiful. I wrote and directed many, many plays. Let me tell you this quick story. When I was away, I was in Rikers Island in the beginning before I went upstate. And uh, my grandmother passed away. Mm-hmm. And I got the call. I remember calling back home. My father had to hear the tears in his eyes that uh, his mom passed away. And I was like... You know, another situation where I was like, fuck, man, you know, because of the choices I made, I can't even be there to be at her funeral. So one of my uh, guys that was in the cell next to me says, hey, why don't you uh, go speak to the priest? <coughs> so I uh, requested to speak to the Catholic priest, and I went down there, and, and I told him, look, my, uh, you know, I live in Brooklyn, and my grandmother passed away. Is there any way possible that it's, you know, probably in a couple of days from now, here's where it is, is... Anywhere I could go, you know, it was, you know, somebody told me that and it just put a bug in me, and I was like, and Catholic priest didn't do nothing for me, and check this out, and 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 the guy next to me says, why don't you go to uh, see the iman, um, you know, the Muslim, uh, 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 you know, to go to church over there, and I went down and I spoke to him, and you know, I, I didn't, you know, practice any religion in Muslim or anything, and. And he uh, was fond of my story and fond that I wanted to try to see my grandma. They felt for me. And, and I swear to God, two days later, I never, I never forget, I woke up in the morning, the cell open. These fucking guys, like the size of fucking Hulk, walked in and says, get your stuff ready. And I swear to God, I'll never forget that moment because all the kids I was away with, who gave me a Lacoste shirt, who gave me a flight jacket, who had cologne, and they all got me ready. And and uh, you know I went to the funeral. I mean they shackled me up. Right. My, right, right. My, mind you, I'm same thing. Nonviolent. You know, nonviolent. I was away for possession right. and intent. And and I got to see my uh, yeah grandmother. Uh, yeah. What year was that? Uh, two thousand and two, maybe. You're lucky. You're lucky. You had a good warden. The warden had to prove that. You had a good warden. Yeah. Had had the warden had to prove that. Yeah. It was uh, it was an experience. It was an experience. Well, actually, the, the bureau, bureau of prisons, the bureau of prisons took you to marshals. I was in a van. I don't know. I was in a. It was. It was, it was, was it a, marshals or guards? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I probably think it was guards. Well, that was a word in total approval because yeah. if the marshals, marshals pick you up, it's a whole different entity, a whole different department. Yeah, they actually have to be paid. The bureau of prison pays pays for your movement for the through the marshals. Yeah, you know they they I never forget they rushed to get me there early, because they they didn't want people to see because they brought me in the funeral parlor and I was shackled from head to you know from yeah, yeah. from arms to legs to yeah. chain and and I never forget they take, uh, you know when when we left the 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 funeral parlor was full so they so there was three people, 
And, uh, you know, I, I come from a big Italian family. My aunt came over, gave me a hug. They came over and said, don't hug like that. Because they yeah. didn't know what I was, you know, yeah, transporting yeah. a given. And then they had to hold the door closed when I left so then they could shackle me back up and then bring me onto the uh, yeah. uh, van. Well, you're lucky. You had a good warden. Yeah. Hey, listen, nothing towards like what you had to go through, but I just figured I'd share that with you. Yeah. Um, Internet, so let me tell you something. George, I mean this, not only uh, from somebody who admires you, uh, your history, uh, what you've been through is a fucking movie. I mean that. I I hope to see this as a doc series. I hope to see, I, I hope I'm just one of the, uh, a piece of the puzzle to help spread the word on this story, you know? Well, That's, let's hope it happens because the more successful you are, the more jobs you create. Sure. So hopefully we'll... We'll have a couple hundred people working sure. behind my uh, my stories and messages. Actually, uh, one last thing: uh, is it true Con Air uh, is based off the time you prevented the hijacking uh, of a prison plane? No, the movie came out before, uh, but I actually lived lived heroic lived through and did the heroic deed for Con Air in 2010, uh, August of 2010. What happened? Well, lo and behold, I'm sound asleep, and I feel some movement around my feet. You know, we're all chained in the plane, back of a plane, and uh, it's a prison transport. And I looked down, and I thought I, I thought I thought I saw a pen, you know, a writing pen. And I looked a little more, and I seen it was a speed handcuff key. A speed handcuff key is about three inches long with a rubber grip. And let you out of your leg irons and handcuffs quickly. They're speed keys. And uh, and I looked down, and a couple buddies of mine, one was from New York and one was from Philly. Uh, there was 12 of us in all in the back. And he said, they've been fishing around your bottom of your seat. I said, who? And he says, there was some Mayan pirates in the back. They didn't understand English. They just... And I'm saying to myself... Plane, what's a plane? Forty yards long, <clears throat> thirty yards. I says, of all the seats, this has to be under my seat. Fuck, because I know protocol. You're not coming out of leg irons and handcuffs in a prison transport over the air. It's not happening. You will be killed. The marshals. You have three armed marshals. There's nine marshals. Three of them are armed. Expert shots <clears throat> with the laser beams. Anybody holding a handcuff key, or possibly near a handcuff key, is going to be killed. You're not coming out of chains in a prison transport. So I knew this. And I figured, here's my appeal. Not only that, I'm going to lose my appeal, probably get killed. And they're trying to get the key, and I'm fighting them. Almost broke my right wrist. And and the it was just terrible. Finally, I got a hold of it. Now, once I got a hold of it, what do you do with it? You say to Marshall, here's your key. I'm going to be dead in about three to six seconds. They will kill you. Oh, so <laughs> I got it, and I tossed it, tossed it, and it just landed perfect where they couldn't get it. The guys behind me landed perfect in a groove, and that's when I told the marshal, get your key. And wow, what happened? More panic. They grabbed me. <clears throat> Hauled me up to the front of the plane, okay, and isolated me. And I knew that was coming. I figured, let me just 
stop what's going to become saving all our lives because all 12 of us would have been killed instantly because we just have to be past that little pocket in the back of the plane where you pour, where you, you know, where they served the food and we had a little pocket back there. So anyway, plane lands, FBI. I ain't saying nothing. I figured they're going to sort it out and I get whisked away to some jail in Oklahoma, thrown in a hole in about Two, three days, the FBI came, and they knew the whole story. And <clears throat> and I said, well, can I have documentation that I saved the day? And it took me four years to get the documentation. Wow. And that was one of the deciding factors upon my release. The judge saw that documentation. But it had to be a legal document. It couldn't have been my story. How did they know your story, though? There was one lieutenant that in the Bureau of Prisons that I knew for a lot of years— and I just told him the story. And he took, he was relentless to get those documents. Wow. Four, four years he got, took to get the document. And that was one of the. The stories factors. are endless, man. The stories yeah. are endless. Especially you uh, with the riots and saving people's lives. <laughs> you know? Do you remember well, that? Uh, you can see it on social media. We'll George see. George marched around a hand, handcuff key. Yeah? I don't want to see no more handcuff keys. Uh, you won't. You're home. You're home for good. <laughs> You're home for good, my friend. Internet's the one and only, the legendary, George Cowboy Moderano. See you next episode. Cheer. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up, hold up one second. I mean, this episode has stories for days. The journey can never be told in an hour and change, okay? I know this one story about in prison where you named these, uh, tell us about these dogs that were in prison. Oh, story about T-Mobile. Well, they trained two dogs in the prison. Uh, one that sm- smelled the cell phone, uh, smelled the battery in the cell phone, and the other dog to sell drugs. Well, cell phones became a big entity, a big contraband. They weren't supposed to have it, but certain gangs used to get them in. It wasn't cheap. They used to get them in some way. I don't know who they paid, but they were coming in. And uh, this little black dog here, he used to find them. He found 17 one time in one cell block. So this gang leader, he's called a shot caller, he put a hit out on T-Mobile. And, <laughs> when you, uh, I felt personally... Uh, responsible? Responsible because the name was cool in the beginning. And everyone, you named him. You named everyone him. Everyone laughed about it. They thought the, 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 the name was cool, the dog was cool, so he started interfering with all these cell phones. He's, they were paying 1500 to 2500 a piece add up, added up. They found seventeen just with one gang. So they were gonna, they were gonna have uh, one of the gang members, uh, you know, killed the poor dog. I don't even want to describe how we done to a lot of pet owners, but it wouldn't be nothing nice. So, and since I named them, like, I just couldn't let that happen. And I went over and talked to the shot caller and negotiated. And anyway, I saved T-Mobile's life. <laughs> So the dog lived because uh, you talked him down. Yeah, but then I went to the I went to the warden and I didn't tell him the story and I said, you know, I think T Mo get him out of here. It's enough. And I just looked him in the eyes. I think he understood. They said T Mobile probably went to another jail. <laughs> <laughs> so since you named him T Mobile, everyone in the prison would call him T Mobile. Yeah, everyone thought it was cool, right? Until he started. Uh, Finding all the Finding cell phones. all the, yeah, so, so when they you all say, turned on poor T-Mobile. T, T so when you say they were going to put a hit on him, were they just going to, like, go stab him or something like that? Yeah, they probably 
something very, very violent. That poor dog didn't even know his wife was on the line. All right, well, listen, uh, shouts to T-Mobile, not even the company, the dog. What type of dog was it? You know, he was a mixed dog, probably had some some, uh, retriever in him, you know. It wasn't a big dog, it was a small dog, but black, very, I remember, very, very like raven black fur, so... So, T-Mobile. And, and you know what? One last thing, too. Um, you know, I remember you saying the streets, uh, I forgot the exact word you said. But streets the, don't love you back. Streets don't love you back because. Well, incidentally, about streets don't love you back is a friend of mine that did time, uh, Rob Boyd and his wife, uh, they opened, they started an organization in Cincinnati. Now they're very big in Arizona. Uh, matter of fact, he's just, he's starting his own FM show, The Streets Don't Love You Back. We're very proud of that. Uh, uh, Rob is a person. Uh, he wrote a book about it, and he's doing very well in helping uh, change people's lives. You know, um, throughout your time and your journey, one thing I will say is that, you know, you you have some amazing things that you overcame. And I remember you telling me, at one point in time with properties, you had about, what, $20 million in property. Yeah, one time I was— And lost it all. Lost it all. Lawyers— Family bad management, but it came out alive. I'm How still, much did you come out with? Twenty bucks. And you know what? You're on your way back, but this time, there ain't no no uh, 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 people saying that you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that. Listen, you're home. You're home to stay. Well, what we have to do is there's a, there is a way to come back if you stay hard, build up your credit. Uh, you know, we have to pass that on up to these other prisoners. We have to get the government to actually learn from what I did so we don't have this these guys uh, going right back. Sure. Come home and stay home. Right. Internets. Right. Stories. Story time with George Monterano. George Cowboy Monterano right here on the Premium Pete Show. Cheer. Internets, if you enjoyed that episode, then hit me up. That's right. Email me at Show at gmail.com. Again, that's Show at gmail.com. If you're an advertiser, any big company, small company, startup, whatever it is, you want to advertise on the Premium Peep Show, hit me up. Email thepremiumpeepshow at gmail.com, and we'll, we'll get to working, okay? And if you have a suggestion or you want to hear a certain guest on the show, whatever it is, okay? You know, you could at Premium Pete, at Premium Peep Show on Twitter or Instagram, or for the last time I'll tell you, well, I'm not gonna, it's not the last time, email me. The Premium Pete Show at gmail.com. And let's get to working. Cheers.